It's time for the LaneCast with Montana's very own Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland, your voice for agriculture. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Agriculture Conversation here on the LaneCast Agriculture Podcast. We are going to have a great conversation today with a leader in the livestock industry who has seen a lot of changes and improvements to uh, agriculture advocacy over the years. The CEO of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, Kendall Frazier, will be joining us here today. But we're actually going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we will talk with Kendall Frazier and, and about his career and his recent announcement that he will be retiring. But that doesn't mean he will be leaving the agriculture industry by any means. But when we come back, Kendall will be with us. Don't go away. We'll be back right after this. As a Montana Farm Bureau member, you have access to a lot of valuable benefits. Now you can have your savings on the go with the Farm Bureau Member Benefits app. The app will show you where you can use your membership discounts with Granger, Case IH, Choice Hotels, John Deere, and more. Plus, with the app, your membership card is on your phone for easy access. It's free. Download the app today. Simply go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Farm Bureau Benefits app. Montana Farm Bureau. We care for the country. Your National Cattlemen's Beef Association knows there's what benefits cattlemen and there's what doesn't. Trade, the farm bill, technology and conservation. The decisions being made in Washington affect the life of each and every cattleman. When it comes to the issues, there's simply no room for gray area. To us, it's as clear as black and white. Visit joinncba.org to learn more. As we come back to today's show, as promised, Kendall Frazier joins us on the phone from Denver, Colorado at the NCBA headquarters. Kendall, the, how's your day going here? On uh, We're recording this show on May Day, May 1st. Uh, how's your May Day going in Denver? It's great, Lane. We've uh, had some more moisture in the form of rain, snow mix for the past several days. We needed it, and we're going to have a beautiful spring along the Front Range in Colorado. Well, uh, we were talking before the show here, uh, a lot of moisture up here in Montana and, and, and much of the West, and I know a lot of spring wheat growers are, are just uh, really wanting to get their, their fields planted, but, uh, you know, it's so tough to cuss rain at the end of the day, as you mentioned. But, uh, Kendall, I, I just want to jump to the big news that was announced just last week, and that is that you will be retiring as CEO of uh, NCBA, and uh, I, I think... Uh, our listeners will be, really want to hear uh, your story and your career of uh, uh, being involved in the agriculture industry. And I just want to start off, you started off in farm broadcasting, uh, the career I have started off in as a young man. Uh, what what drove you as, as a young man uh, to, to be a, in all aspects of agriculture? But uh, I want to talk about the farm broadcasting, but let's just talk about your beginnings, where you grew up and, and your connection to agriculture. I grew up on a diversified stalker cattle and wheat and milo operation uh, south of Wichita, Kansas, right on the Oklahoma border. It was a family operation. I had uh, three brothers and a sister, of course, my mom and dad. Um, It was uh, in a 35-inch rainfall area. It's an area that's kind of unique in the state of Kansas. Uh, It's right where the Kansas Flint Hills, which is a large tall grass grazing area in the state, breaks into some of the most productive dry land, hard red winter wheat uh, land uh, in Kansas. So that's where I grew up. Uh, went to Kansas State University and majored in agricultural economics. After I got out of K-State, I went back uh, and uh, Thought I would get involved in my father's uh, operation. That didn't work out. Uh, my father and I, uh, even though we loved each other to death, didn't see eye to eye uh, all the time. And we finally one day sat down and said, you know what, this isn't going to work. And so I started looking for another job. And I found uh, that there was an opening for a farm broadcaster with WIBW radio and television in Topeka, Kansas. I did not grow up in the WIBW listening area. Uh, I grew up in South Central Kansas. WIBW is a strong voice in Northeast Kansas. So I went up and applied for the job. Uh, when I, I went, the farm director then was named George Logan. 
when I walked into that radio station, uh, it was the first day I'd ever been into a radio station, cut a, uh, a demo tape. Uh, George called me a couple of days later and offered me the job. And it looked like a great opportunity for me, uh, Lane. It was a three-man farm department. They uh, covered agriculture extensively in about a 30 to 40 county radio listening area and a 25 county television area. So I got involved in that, into farm broadcasting, and they had a real commitment to serving Kansas agriculture, not only in northeast Kansas, but throughout the state. And I worked there for four years, and it, it was one of the most, as I look back on my career, one of the most interesting and enjoyable jobs that, that I ever had. Well, what, what was your experience the first time you went live on air? What, what was going through your mind? <clears throat> well, it was interesting, Lane. It's an interesting story. So for a new guy like me, without any broadcast experience at all, uh, you know, they were very careful about putting me on the air. So we had a 5.30 to 7 block on radio in the morning, and if you can believe this, from 6 to 7 o'clock in the morning, we actually had a live three-piece band uh, called the Pleasant Valley Gang, and it was a, a holdover from the days of uh, when a lot of radio stations had large bands that would go out and do county fairs and, and do entertainment in their listing area. So we had a live three-piece band. Well, anyway, I was kind of watching another one of the farm directors, and I would get to the station about 4.30 in the morning. Uh, they would come. I'd sit in, watch. Uh, but the first week I was on the job, the farm director, not farm director, but the other farm reporter uh, overslept. So here it was, 5.30 in the morning, and I'd ripped all the wire copy, and in those, those days it all came across teletypes. And at 5.25 in the morning, the radio engineer said, you're it, Kendall. I can't get a hold of the farm reporter. So they put me on the air uh, my first week in the job, and I did the 5.30 to 6 o'clock block. And because I didn't have time to get nervous about it, I did pretty well. <laughs> uh, and I had no sense of timing. And as you know, Lane, that's one of the things that you learn as a farm broadcaster, how to stretch, contract, news, copy, and things like that. So I ran out of material about 20 minutes into the, in, into the 5.30 half hour, and the radio engineer, I said, what do we do next? And he said, well, I'm going to start playing some records. So he played some records, and we got to 6 o'clock, and then the farm director came in and took over. So that's how I started. Um, and then after that, uh, I would start to do some of the weather on um, uh, and some of the uh, farm programming on radio. And I just worked in gradually. Uh, I worked with a longtime broadcaster at the station who had been there many, many years. And he worked with me, and I'll never forget him. He was kind of my mentor. And, you know, obviously I got better as I went along and, and learned the business. That was the radio side of it. The television side of it, we had a half-hour program called Midday in Kansas that the farm department produced. It included news. Uh, farm news, uh, weather, uh, and then we would do reports from meetings that we would cover in the listing area or national meetings. And I, I gradually worked into doing some segments on that and then got to host that after about a year. Uh, George Logan left as farm director. Uh, my new boss came in. His name was Rich Hall. He's well known in farm broadcast circles. And Rich was the president of the National Association of Farm Broadcasters uh, the second year I was at the station. And the opportunity that I had there was that he traveled extensively as the farm broadcaster president. And so that meant that my colleague, the other farm reporter, or me, got to host that television show every day. So I did a lot of television work and learned a lot about how television works. And that was really interesting. So it was a wonderful career. And the thing it did, Lane, for me, was it gave me a tremendous platform and exposure to Kansas agriculture, because we covered agriculture extensively. And I made, I made relationships in Kansas agriculture with other organizations uh, and covering them that eventually led me to another job in Kansas. But it was, uh, it was a lot of work. It was hard work. 
but uh, it was uh, very enjoyable, and it really set the foundation for my career. So from there, you also uh, moved on to the Kansas Livestock Association, and that was really a, a big uh, uh, step in the in the right direction, which took you to, to your career now. Uh, what, what was it like going uh, from the uh, broadcast booth then on to uh, advocating uh, for uh, uh, ranchers in, in Kansas? Well, I was hired in the uh, spring of 1978 as the uh, – Director of Communications for the Kansas Livestock Association. And the Kansas Livestock Association is really the cattlemen's association in the state of Kansas. And I was hired by a gentleman named John Mates, who passed away last year. I worked for him, and then I worked for another gentleman named the CEO, D. Likes. Uh, KLA is a very influential organization in the state of Kansas. Uh, beef industry is the number one industry in the state by far. Uh, we had a large professional staff. I published the, the magazine, <clears throat> a weekly newsletter that they did. I did all their media relations work. I did a weekly radio show. And it was a really enjoyable experience. And, and I'll be honest with you, you know, I got into farm broadcasting with no experience in broadcasting. I get into publishing a monthly magazine and weekly newsletter, and I'd never done anything like that before. So I had a learning curve that I, I had to go through. But I felt like uh, by doing that and, and learning the print side of agriculture communications, it would really help me in my career. And I got to work with uh, some really wonderful people in the Kansas cattle industry. And we had people in the sheep industry and pork industry also involved in KLA, but the majority of their members were cattlemen. And uh, I met so many wonderful people and made so many relationships in that job. And I look back on those days with many, many fond memories. What were some of those issues that uh, KLA was working on uh, back then? Two or three things that were high priorities for the organization. One is uh, Kansas had just gone through a, a major consolidation of, uh, of, of schools throughout the state. And there was also a lot of discussion in the, uh, in the state about uh, property taxes and the tax structure in the state and property taxes were increasing. And one of the issues that we worked on was to try to get agriculture land valued for property tax purposes more on its real use rather than its commercial use or speculative use. And we were able to get that done. Uh, in other words, if you own farmland, you pay property tax on the production from that farmland, farmer ranch land, and not the potential uh, speculative value of it. We were able to get that done. So that was the big issue. The uh, feed yard industry in the state was continuing to grow. And as you well know, it's a, it's a major force in the cattle industry today. Commercial feeding started on in western Kansas in the late 50s, mid to late 50s, really accelerated during the 60s, was continuing to grow when I was there. Uh, we were able to secure Working with uh, the governor's office and our congressional delegation, we really were able to secure the, uh, at that time, the Iowa Beef Processors Plant in, um, in Garden City, Kansas, or Holcomb, near Garden City. And that really changed southwest Kansas and changed uh, uh, the, the uh, feeding industry, really helped the feeding industry in southwest and western Kansas. It's now a Tyson plant, of course, owned by Tyson. So that's another thing we worked on. Um, so we just worked on a lot of property rights issues, too. Uh, the industry in Kansas is very diverse. You have a large feeding industry. You have a lot of large uh, purebred operations, stocker operations, cow-calf producers. So that was the other thing that I really enjoyed about the job, the opportunity to interact with so many different segments of the industry. It's a little bit of a unique state. And KLA is a little bit of a unique organization because it has all those segments involved in, in the organization. So it was a very enjoyable experience. I worked there from 1978 to 1985. And then I had an opportunity to, um, to uh, go to work for the National Cattlemen's Association in Denver as their vice president of communications. Uh, it was something I spent a lot of time thinking about. I could still be at KLA today uh, and be very happy. It was a great organization. In fact, the, the person that succeeded me at KLA 
is still there today, Todd Domer. Um, but I thought uh, I was interested in maybe moving to Colorado. My wife was interested in Colorado and uh, just thought it would be an opportunity to go to work for the national organization. So we moved to Denver in 1985, and I was the vice president of communications for the National Cattlemen's Association. Now, of course, National Cattlemen's Association uh, merged there in the 90s, and uh, let, let's talk about why the NCA merged with other groups uh, to create what is now the NCBA and uh, and what has come from that uh, collaboration? Sure. So <clears throat> when I worked for the National Cattlemen's Association, there were basically four organizations that represented the beef industry in some way. So there's the National Cattlemen's Association. There was the Cattlemen's Beef Board that oversees and administers the national $1 per head beef checkoff. There was the Beef Industry Council of the National Livestock and Meat Board that was located in Chicago. And then there was the U.S. Meat Export Federation. And it became uh, very obvious to some industry leaders during that time period that these four organizations were, were, were having challenges coordinating focusing, uh, duplication of meetings, duplications of committees, uh, duplications of efforts. Um, so, and I'll be honest with you, there was conflict and friction between the organizations. At the same time that was going on, uh, we were losing demand in this industry dramatically. Uh, beef demand was falling uh, during the 1970s, 1980s. We had some some things that happened in our industry during that time period that really shocked the industry. One was a beef boycott of consumers in 1973, uh, where we actually had housewives picketing outside supermarkets about complaining about the high price of beef. Uh, we had a bad E. coli outbreak in the Pacific Northwest uh, from some jack-in-the-box restaurants that actually ended up killing some children. Um, we had a product that was not consumer friendly. Um, it was not convenient. Uh, no one knew how to cook a pot roast. Uh, consumers were changing. So we were dramatically losing beef demand. So a group of industry leaders, a group of real statesmen, uh, formed a group uh, in 1994. <clears throat> and they spent a couple of years really doing a an in-depth self-assessment of the industry and where and where it was headed, and they came out of that uh, with a first industry long-range plan, and basically said that if this industry did not change and get focused on the consumer, for too long we had been focused on production, which is important, but if we didn't get focused on the consumer, then we would have a tough future ahead of us. And these were some industry leaders from all four of these organizations. And they came out with that industry plan in uh, 1994. It was, uh, it was kind of an interesting document. I've still got copies of it. It's, it's been the foundation for subsequent plans that have been done through the years. But the bottom line was we've got to go focus on consumers. Consumers are the source of all wealth in our industry. And if we don't do that, we don't have a bright future. At the end of their deliberations, after they put that plan together, they asked this question. And this question was this. All right, we've done this plan. We spent a lot of time working on it. Do we have the right industry organizational structure to execute that plan? They only asked that question after they did the plan. And they concluded that we didn't. Uh, they concluded that there needed to be change. And out of their recommendation came the merger of the National Cattlemen's Association and the Beef Industry Council of the National Livestock and Meat Board and a close working relationship with the Cattlemen's Beef Board. And that's why we have joint committees with the Cattlemen's Beef Board today between the Federation of State Beef Councils and the Cattlemen's Beef Board. But that was their recommendation, and that's, that's how the merger of those organizations happened. In addition to that, they recommended because that the Meat Export Federation was a multi-species organization, 
that they really couldn't go into that merger, and they didn't, but they recommended that there be a very close working relationship between the new organization, NCBA, and the, and the U.S. Meat Export Federation, and that continues today because exports and trade are very important to U.S. cattlemen. So that's kind of the history of how that happened. <clears throat> I had a front row seat to see all that happened. I watched some of our industry leaders put it together. And uh, in the mid-90s, Lane, uh, and we measured demand through third parties. Um, beef demand cratered, it bottomed out, and it started to increase. And it's been increasing since the mid-1990s. And I believe that without that focus, without some of those changes that were done, we probably might not have stopped that decline. Today we've done a lot of things that have really helped boost demand. We continue to be focused on demand. And um, I think those industry leaders had a lot of foresight. Now, Kendall, there, there's folks out there that uh, will, will make the statement that uh, NCBA is a too aligned with foreign-owned packers and that they work against uh, uh, the cow-calf ranchers out across the West. Uh, let, let's just talk about that and tie it back to, you know, focusing on consumers. What What is your response to individuals when, when they say that NCBA is too aligned with packers and that the packers make up the NCBA? Well, first of all, on our board of directors, and we have over 200 members of our board of directors. I think there are four or five packers on our board of directors, and they don't, you know, they can't control our policy process or our governance process if they even try to. In fact, most of the time, they, they don't even come to our board meetings. They do participate in our meetings, and they come to our meetings. And we, we have what we call a product council here at, at uh, NCBA where we have not only Packers as part of that, but we have retailers, we have food service companies that are also involved in that. Let me tell you why that's important, Lane. It's because, and I've experienced this, when I worked for the National Cattlemen's Association, we had no product council. Um, we, would, we would get into issues that had a consumer touch to them. And there were, without another voice in the room to give some context to what decisions mean to consumers. And I'm not talking about environmental issues. I'm not talking about those type of issues. I'm talking about issues around safety, nutrition, competitive meats, those kind of issues. Without some voices in the room from people who actually work in retail food service, uh, manufacturing processing, you make decisions based on emotion and biases instead of this is what it really means to consumers that we touch every day. And that's been a big difference what I've seen in NCBA versus NCA, the organization that I worked for. That when we make decisions here, we not only consider what they mean to the producer, obviously they're very important to us, our board of directors is 70% cow-calf producers. So we always have in mind what this means to, to a producer, a feeder, um, but we also take in consideration the decision on this issue, what that means to the consumer. And that's a big change. And, and I think that's made us better as an organization because again, all source of wealth in this industry comes through the consumer. And you have to make sound business decision, fact-based business decision. So that's how I would answer that question. In addition to that, uh, the product council members do not control our governance structure. Our governance structure and the final policy that is made by this organization is made by producers. Now with that, kind of looking at current issues that are impact impacting or, or being discussed at the local sale rings or at folks' uh, kitchen tables is, of, of course, country of origin labeling, Kendall. And there's a lot of folks out there when, that when they see cool, it, it makes sense to them. And we've seen a lot of uh, state pushes in their legislatures to have a state cool and of course, a few years back, Congress repealed Cool. Why? Do, and to me, when I when I read Cool, Cool makes sense. But uh, there's a lot more to that, obviously. And uh, why is NCBA looked at uh, 
the the ranching impact and of course the consumer impact on cool and uh, why why uh, why are they opposed to it? We're not opposed to labeling. We're just impo- we're opposed to government mandated labeling. And cool has not worked. It was implemented. It was in place. It did not work. It added cost to the industry with no value. A couple of thoughts on cool for you. One is. If that label had value to consumers, then the packers would put that on tomorrow morning. Their margins that they operate on and retailers' margins that they operate on, if they can gain another half cent a pound in the products that they sell, they would put that label on tomorrow morning. So there's no value in the marketplace for a government-mandated program like that. Now, there are some... Uh, operations that are using that label, um, and we say go for it. Go do it. If you want to use that label or some kind of a label that identifies country of origin, go do it. But let's not have a a government-mandated program. The second problem with it is that we we export um, about a billion dollars worth of beef a year to Canada and a billion dollars worth of beef to Mexico. The Canadians took country of origin labeling to the World Trade Organization and they filed a complaint in a case and they won that case. And if country of origin labeling would have stayed in place, the Canadians and the Mexicans were going to put substantial tariffs on U.S. beef going into those two very important markets to us. So. They won the WTO case. They had a right to do that, and they were going to do it. So it would have, there would have been economic harm and bounce back into our industry. So for those reasons, that's why we've been opposed to it. And the other thing that uh, I'll just mention, school doesn't have anything to do with beef safety. And, and some of the proponents of it have, have claimed that. Well, it doesn't. It's not about beef safety. Uh, there's a... USDA inspection process that takes care of beef safety. So that, that's why NCBA was not in favor of it. It added cost without benefit, um, and uh, we faced uh, some retaliatory tariffs from Mexico and Canada that would have hurt our exports into those two countries. Now, speaking about focusing on, on consumers and uh, following consumer trends, uh, of course, the, the $1 per head beef checkoff w- was a part of growing uh, consumer knowledge. And, of course, everyone remembers Sam Elliott's voice, Beef, it's what's for dinner uh, back back in the 90s on TV. And, um, of course, that had a lot to do with growing beef demand and knowledge and nutrition along the way. And uh, the beef checkoff is uh, also a contentious point for, for some ranchers. Um, wh- what value do you still see in the checkoff yourself as CEO of NCBA? I think it has a lot of value, and it is, we know, through third-party independent research of producer attitudes about the checkoff that it maintains a level of support among producers, and this would be all producers. It's really good research of over 70%. So it's pretty popular among uh, uh, producers out there. But the real value is of it is multifaceted. I mean, the promotion work that it does, the consumer education work that it does, the research work that it does, the uh, money that is spent in overseas markets promoting U.S. beef, uh, it has a lot of value. In fact, the independent studies have been done uh, that show that it returns about $10 to every $1 invested. And let me give you an example. So let's get into some examples. Without the beef checkoff, uh, let me back up. There's a group of people in the United States that really move the agenda regarding food recommendations to consumers. In other words, I'm talking about dietitians, I'm talking about doctors, I'm talking about people that influence and make recommendations to consumers about what they should eat. Before the beef checkoff, we had little if any reach out to dietitians, which is an extremely important audience, influential audience in the United States. Today, uh, through our state national partnership, uh, working with state beef councils, 
We hold dietitian seminars all over the United States and actually bring in speakers that talk about the benefits of beef. So those dietitians, and we've done that for many years, understand that beef has a really important role in the diet. I'll give you an example of what Texas does, the Texas Beef Council. They have a program that's aimed at physicians, and they actually have four to five people that call on physicians in Texas in the major market areas to talk about the value of beef. Uh, so we've done a lot of nutrition research uh, where we've been able to uh, actually prove the nutritional benefits of beef. So my point is nutrition is a big demand driver, and we've done a lot of studies on demand uh, regarding beef consumption, and we've been able to put resources against that demand driver, which is very important. Quality and consistency. Two things I'll mention that the checkoff did. About 15 years ago, there was a major study done called the Muscle Profiling Study. And it looked at the chuck and round, which 15 to 20 years ago were basically products produced from the carcass that had very little value to the consumer. They didn't know how to cook them. They didn't, no one wanted to spend the time to cook a pot roast. That study, funded with checkoff dollars, looked at the muscles in the chuck and round that could be utilized uh, somewhere else other than hamburger because that's what was happening to the chuck and rounds that a retailer couldn't, couldn't uh, sell. They grind it for hamburger and at less value. That's where the flat iron steak came from and some of those other cuts that are now being marketed through restaurants at an enhanced value. That was all funded with checkoff dollars. Several years ago, uh, gosh, this is almost 25, 30 years ago, uh, the Beef Checkoff funded what was called a quality audit. In other words, it set down some metrics about beef quality. And we do that every four years now. It's been a benchmark that producers can shoot at. We've rolled it out a couple of years ago, the latest study. It's been really, I think, helpful and been a foundation for the Beef Quality Assurance Program, which is funded with uh, beef checkoff dollars. And we've been able to improve the quality of our product. I don't think the checkoff can take all credit for this, but we now have, you know, cattle, fed cattle, that are, are grading 80% choice and prime. Uh, versus 20 years ago, that number was around 50%. If you put a quality product out there in front of consumers, they're going to eat more of it. And we know that quality is a, a demand driver. Uh, checkoff dollars have been spent in uh, nutrition, uh, nutrition research, safety research around issues such as salmonella and E. coli. We know that safety is an important uh, demand driver and that we need to do research to make sure that we can assure consumers that beef is safe. Um, checkoff dollars has been used to manage big issues like the first BSC outbreak in the United States in 2003. A lot of people don't know that, but the checkoff funded a lot of the planning uh, before that outbreak in 2003 and the work that went in to retain consumer confidence. So uh, the checkoff has value. So in. with that, could you explain the relationship that NCBA and other livestock groups and other entities uh, that contract with the checkoff, could you explain how that is set up and monitored? Sure. So there's a 20-member committee of uh, called the Beef Promotion Operating Committee. And they basically contract with uh, industry-governed organizations to conduct checkoff-funded programs. And that would include uh, NCBA, it includes the North American Meat Institute, includes the U.S. Meat Export Federation, it includes the American Farm Bureau. Uh, there's several uh, industry-governed organizations that contract with checkoff dollars to implement checkoff-funded programs. The oversight, the administrative and program oversight for those contracts is done through the Cattlemen's Beef Board, which administers the dollar-per-head checkoff. And that oversight of the Cattlemen's Beef Board comes through USDA and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. There are about 20 federal checkoffs and a lot of different commodities. But USDA has oversight over all of those programs. Uh, those contracts and implementation, uh, the financial side of those are monitored, audits are done, uh, 
for both the financial part of those contracts and the pro program part of those contracts. There's an evaluation committee that evaluates programs. So my point, Lane, is nobody just gets a blank check to go do checkoff-funded programs. In addition to that, there's no, you can't, there's no markup to those programs. In other words, you can't make a profit off of conducting checkoff-funded programs. So, but nobody's given a blank check. There's a lot of administrative oversight, both financial and from a program execution standpoint, that goes into those now, programs. Now, uh, utilizing that checkoff to promote real beef, I, I personally think is so important because fake meat, that lab-growing protein, I, I think is one of the scarier aspects uh, in the threats that we in the livestock industry are going to be facing. Uh, I, again, let, let's maybe talk about this issue, and uh, really, if it's it's one of the bigger issues along with trade that you've seen serving as CEO uh, through the past uh, few years. Uh, why is fake meat so scary? And if truly, it is scary to me. Well, number one, and, and we do this through our the policy arm of, of NCBA that's funded with dues dollars. Um, we have been active in Washington D.C., and this has been one of the our top priority issues to make sure that the regulatory process that's put in place to regulate these products, that we have a level playing field. And all you have to do is look back at what's happened to the milk industry uh, and the dairy industry. Just go into any supermarket and see how milk is labeled. Well, that was all done by the Food and Drug Administration. The Food and Drug Administration has oversight over those products. And it's out of control. There's a lot of mislabeling going on in the dairy case of a supermarket. So our whole focus from a regulatory standpoint has been to make sure that USDA has the oversight to inspect these products and approve labels for these products. We don't think you we don't want FDA to do that. Now so far in all of this process of sorting this out by the federal government, we've been successful in keeping USDA in the driver's seat. The whole point being that we have to have a, label, a level playing field from an inspection and labeling standpoint. We want the same accountability, the same inspection process put in place for the fake meat products that are in place today for all other cattle that are slaughtered. So, that's been a high pro, uh, priority of NCBA, and we're going to continue to monitor that. We're going to continue to make sure that that happens. Long term, will these products be a, a threat to traditional uh, beef consumption? That'll get sorted out long term. Um, it's something we're sure going to have to pay a lot of attention to, and we'll probably have to compete. But I, I think U.S. Farmers and ranchers are up to the task lane, and I think we'll be able to compete with Now, you mentioned the cow that stole Christmas back in 2003, and uh, with uh, with that event, that had a big impact on, on the livestock industry, of course. But uh, with that also came uh, the issues management response team uh, that uh, you helped create there at NCBA. Uh, how did the cow that stole Christmas, how did that change the livestock industry on multiple levels uh, from your view? Well, um, and I had a front row seat to this. We started uh, watching what was going on in England and the continental Europe regarding mad cow disease and BSE in the late 80s and, you know, through the 1990s. They had multiple outbreaks uh, in the uh, United Kingdom. Um, and we're having a lot of problems. So we sat down with the federal government at that time, and it was the Clinton administration, and, and put together, you know, exchanged information, but basically put together a plan uh, with the federal government. And, and the whole purpose of that was, okay, if this ever comes to the United States, what are we going to do? What, how, what kind of a plan are we going to execute? And we did a lot of things in planning for that. We built a dark website that had a lot of this scientific information about it. Um, so when we got the word, I think it was December 23rd of 2003, that we had diagnosed, the federal government had diagnosed the first case of BSE in a dairy cow in Washington State, 
we immediately mobilized the cross-functional team within NCBA, uh, representing all our departments. The issues management team was our core. We had public relations people involved. Um, but we mobilized the team to really focus on managing that issue. For example, we had put together, uh, in planning for that event, a list of uh, 100, over 100 uh, national news media outlets, both uh, newspaper like the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, all the major metropolitan newspapers, all the major, uh, at that time, television network outlets. We had that list, had an email distribution list, and when USDA announced that Secretary Veneman was going to hold a news conference uh, and announce this case, we sent out a notice and said we were going to do a news conference with a spokesperson a spokesperson representing the beef industry 30 minutes after that news conference to give an industry perspective and, and reassure the media. And we were able to do that. That was another thing that we had planned to do. We worked for 11 straight days uh, answering consumer questions, doing a lot of media work uh, for 11 straight days over Christmas and New Year's. We were able to measure through our consumer research and tracking consumer attitudes that we never lost consumer confidence in U.S. beef. And what we did during those 11 days, um, I, I know personally has been studied by uh, several Fortune 500 companies, uh, and I know I spent time with uh, several of those sharing what we did, and I know they went back and, and set in place some similar uh, teams within their own companies to manage big issues like that. It, Lane, it was one of the highlights of my careers. It's one of the toughest 11 days that I ever went through, but as I look back, it's one of the highlights of my career. We had a, a really great team of people in NCBA that we threw against that. It was about 20 people. A lot of it was funded with checkoff dollars, and we were able to get through that and maintain consumer confidence. And we won a lot of national awards from that, from, uh, from national public relations societies, and uh, it was one of the highlights. And of at the career. end of the day, the, the awards, <laughs> that, that's just a, you know, uh, uh, something that really can be pushed aside when you look at the impact and really saving the reputation of those hardworking men and women out in the countryside that work day in and day out to produce uh, the best beef in the world. So uh, I, I just think it's pretty remarkable, and people, that was uh, quite the sacrifice to take time away from your, your family there during Christmas and New Year's, but uh, it, it's truly a lesson, I, I think, that we can take away in, in showing how the livestock organizations can work together to really highlight our great industry in a time of crisis. Yeah, and it was, and, and you know, I want to mention, as we went through that, we couldn't have got through that without our, our state partners all the state cattlemen's association, all the state beef councils, and NCBA were speaking with one voice. And when you threw the power of that, of that state national partnership throughout the United States, from North Carolina to Hawaii, uh, and from Florida to Washington State, when you threw that against managing that issue, uh, it was very powerful. The second thing I would say about the awards after we won the awards, I told some of our leadership, I don't want to ever do this again. You know, I don't want to win these awards. I mean, they were great, but that's enough of that. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little facetious uh, there with you, but um, it, it, was, uh, it was something that I look back on and uh, with a lot, of, uh, a lot of fond memories about it. We gave up Christmas Day. We gave up New Year's Day, but that's okay. Uh, because uh, we were working for the industry. And that's why we have a federal checkoff, and that's why we have NCBA, to deal with issues like that and protect the what, what are some of the biggest changes that, that you have seen in, in your career from farm broadcasting to advocating for the livestock industry, whether that's changes in media or policy or, or just how, how things are done? What are some of those big takeaways that you uh, can sit back at the end of the day and reflect on and maybe, maybe mull over? You know, one would be the speed of communications today versus what it was when I started in farm broadcasting in 1974. It is incredible how fast news travels today through social media, through uh, cable television is very, you know, new today. There was no CNN in 1974 when I started. So you've, 
communication travels faster and there are a lot more communications outlets. So that would be a big significant change from someone who has watched communications most of my life. And we at NCBA and I know a lot of other people are trying to figure out where this is all headed and how, what this is going to shake out to be you know, 10, 20 years from now. And that, that's a big puzzle that I don't think anybody in agriculture quite has figured out yet. So that would be a big change. Um, the encroachment of the federal government uh, you know, on, on proper, private property rights and on public lands and the use of public lands, uh, even through Republican and Democrat administrations in my career, I, I, I've seen that slacken a little bit, but it's almost like it's a relentless march forward for increasing environmental regulations on the use of property, whether it's public lands or private lands in the United States. Why is that important? Because cattlemen own and control more land than any other industry in the United States. And we have a cost structure in this fed beef production system that we've built in the United States that's, that's you know, our product compared to some of the other cost structures around the world, the uh, Australia, New Zealand, Argentina, Brazil, we have a more expensive product. So my point being, we need to be very careful that we don't price ourselves out of the world marketplace at some place. So that would be a, another big change that, that has occurred. And then another big change that I've seen is there, there's more coordination and alignment going on right now in our industry than ever before. And what it's doing is breaking down the, the uh, segments, uh, and there's a lot more coordination. I'll give you an example of that. You know, you may have a major packer working with a major feeding company, and that feeding company is lining up cow-calf producers to feed cattle into their feedlot system. You've got more coordination going on like that. Not control and ownership, but coordination. And my crystal ball says we're going to see more of that in the future, and the consumer is going to drive that. Um, so those would be some off the top of my head, Lane. Now uh, you just mentioned kind of looking forward to how, how some trends may go. Where, where where do we go from here in, in the short term and the long term? From your experience in the industry, where, where where I guess what are maybe some cautions or maybe some advice for for young producers as uh, we get started in the industry and start taking over leadership roles? Well, um, for a young producer getting involved in the industry, my advice to them would be. You know, build relationships. Build relationships in your, your local community. Uh, build com relationships in your state. And build relationships on the national level because they will enhance your education and your learning uh, and, and help make you a better business person. And at the end of the day, that's what you've got to be to be involved in production agriculture. So do that. I don't see that the consolidation uh, is going to stop in American agriculture. Uh, you know, we just saw some census data that was released not too long ago by the federal government that showed that the number of, of farming and ranching operations continues to decline. Uh, and, and I don't see that uh, trend, that long-term trend, uh, probably changing. It could slow down if, if we have more profitability in our industry, and we have seen a little bit of that over the last three or four years as we've seen the segments in our industry uh, be profitable. But there's consolidation going on in dairy. There's consolidation going on in, obviously, swine has gone on there. There's some consolidation going on in, uh, in beef production. There are fewer cow-calf producers. Technology, the access to capital, uh, there's a lot of things driving that. And, and operating in a world marketplace. So that's something I think that's a watch out for anybody getting involved is, you know, what's your plan uh, long term if you're going to uh, have a production operation, if you're going to have a cow-calf operation, what is your plan long term? How are you going to be sustained this? Uh, how many cows are you going to have to run? Um, what's going to be your niche in the marketplace? Who do you want to aligned with to do business with. I think those are things that people are going to have to really look at uh, closely. And then finally, um, Lane, I, I don't see that American agriculture, the, our, our ability to produce a, a safe, reliable food supply 
and we export somewhere between 20 to 25 percent of all American ag products overseas. Uh, with the population growth that's forecast over the next 10 to 20 years, um, I don't see that that demand is going to decrease anytime soon. And there will be an opportunity for young producers to come in and participate in a global marketplace. We're not going to close our borders. Uh, we're going to trade with people. Yeah, we've got some challenges right now. Uh, the administration's working on some trade agreements with Japan, China, uh, other countries. But we're going to continue to trade with people because America has this safe, abundant, affordable, consistent food supply that is going to be demanded around the world as we see middle class populations continue to grow around the world. So it's an exciting time. Uh, you're going to have to be able to watch your cost. You're going to have to pay attention to how you market ag products and cattle. Uh, but I think there's a lot of opportunity. How about a message uh, to those young men and women that uh, aren't able to go back to a family operation uh, due to multiple circumstances, whether they can't expand, uh, not not an opportunity, um, or, or whatever it may be? What's your advice to them? You and I are kind of on that same path where we have to advocate for agriculture to still be a part of it for the most part, even though I'm part of my family's operation here in Montana. Uh, what's your advice to them to still be involved and continue to uh, enhance agriculture in rural communities? Well, in my alma mater, and I, I graduated from K-State and the College of Agriculture uh, last year, a year ago, 95% uh, of the graduates in agriculture who didn't go back to their farming and their ranching operation were able to get a job. And so my advice to a young person would be to go to a land-grant university somewhere, major in agriculture, because there is tremendous opportunity there in allied industry, uh, banking and finance, uh, the whole gamut of ag careers out there. There's an opportunity. These companies want to hire people. And if you've got good grades, you are very marketable. That's very different from when I was in college. When I graduated from college in 1973, uh, there were not enough jobs for the graduates. There are today. So that would be my advice. If you can't go back to your farm and ranch operation, and you know, Lane, you well know, not everybody can do that, then major in agriculture, and you'll be able to get a job and start your career and meet as many people as you can, try to get a job where you have an opportunity to meet a lot of people, and it's a great career. Uh, one of the things in my career that has been very rewarding to me, and I've really enjoyed it, is all the people that I've got to meet, not only in the beef industry, but in other agriculture commodities, uh, agriculture farm organizations. Uh, they're just tremendous people. And uh, I've got relationships that I'll carry. Now, just speaking about meeting people, who who are some of those remarkable leaders or just uh, uh, farmers and ranchers that you've met along the way that that have made an impact on you and really maybe have stuck stuck in that memory of some aha moments or some memorable moments? Lane, I've got to be careful here because if I start down that list, I'm going to leave somebody out, and I don't want to do that. Uh, let's just put it this way. I've met and had a chance to work with some of the most innovative, uh, intelligent uh, leaders in the beef industry and American agriculture. And it's been very rewarding to learn from those people and get to be a partner of those people. But I, I've got a list of names that's really long, and if I start down that list, I'll leave somebody out, and somebody will listen to this. <laughs> and also, like in, in the last few years as a CEO, you've uh, been able to see some regulations that have been pulled back uh, by the Trump administration. Uh, what's it like? Uh, being able to to lead an agriculture organization and to be able to have some impactful changes with an administration that is listening to rural America. Well, it's been uh, it's been really good. Um, during the uh, previous administration, uh, basically we had very little access, and we had an administration that was focused on advancing things like the Waters of the United States rule, and which was a massive takeover of private property rights, which we fought vigorously during that administration. But it's been a breath of fresh air 
this administration and understands business principles and how an economy works, and that you cannot put a regulatory burden on an economy or an industry and expect them to flourish, expect them to create jobs, expect them to be successful. And, you know, there's a lot of smoke and fire that we see every day out of Washington, D.C., but if you go back to the fundamentals of our economy, I believe our unemployment rates are now the lowest in the last 75 years in the United States. We have a 3% uh, GDP growth rate. Uh, five, six years ago, before this administration came in, there were people saying that we would never go back to that again in the United States. Um, this economy is really good, Lane, and uh, this administration, I think, can take some credit for that because they've relieved some regulatory burdens and they've fostered an environment for business to succeed in the United States. They cut taxes, uh, they cut the capital gains tax, which is very important to American business, and we've seen the fruits of that. And that's translated back to increased beef demand. Beef demand right now, and we measure it internationally and domestically, both internationally and domestically, is very strong. And that's a reflection of a lot of some of the programs that we've conducted, obviously, but also as a function of a very strong economy. So, but even in the good times or the bad times, uh, d depending on what administration is in office in D.C., the staff that NCBA has in place in our nation's capital, they have the ears of those members of Congress and those agency officials as well. And I think that's one thing that, you know, folks out in the countryside maybe maybe uh, don't don't really understand is how many uh, NCBA folks are out there on the Hill every single day. We've got about 20-plus uh, staff in our Washington office. We increased uh, the numbers back there a few years ago. And we're working issues, environmental issues on private lands, public lands, tax issues, fake meat, trade issues, um, animal health issues. Uh, these are the kind of issues that that staff is working every day, not only on Capitol Hill, but also with the administration and the agencies, EPA, Interior, USDA. So they are the eyes and ears of our members in Washington, D.C., and they play a very important role. And then we do that through all kinds of administrations. You know, I've watched when I was uh, went to work for uh, WIBW back in the 1970s, Jimmy Carter was president of the United States. So, well, really, Gerald Ford was president of the United States then. So I've seen administrations come and go. Uh, through the years, but it's extremely important that regardless of that, that we have a presence in Washington, D.C., and we do that, and they're back there every single day working these issues and the policy. Now I'm going to backtrack to a few minutes ago when you mentioned uh, students attending land-grant universities. I always encourage folks to look at Montana State University here in Bozeman, where, where I attended school, but also uh, engaging in, in other opportunities for leadership. And, and you and I are both brothers of the Alpha Gamma Rho fraternity. Uh, could, could you talk maybe about how that experience being a part of it, the AGR, uh, Agricultural Brotherhood, has helped set you up for career success as well? Well, it was very important. Um, I joined AGR uh, when I was a freshman at K-State. Uh, they have a very active uh, chapter there, as they do at other land-grant universities around the country. What it did, Lane, first of all, the, the members of Alpha Gamma Rho were all involved in agriculture, and they came from agriculture backgrounds. A couple of things it did for me. One, it got me out of my box, because I met people my age, 18 years old, from all segments of Kansas agriculture, all geographic regions of the state, all kinds of operations. For example, I grew up in South Central Kansas. South Central agriculture, Kansas agriculture is very different from Southwest Kansas agriculture or Northeast Kansas agriculture. So immediately, I was around a group of my peers my age, and I started learning about their ranching and farming operations. In addition to that, uh, we put a high priority at AGR when I was there on uh, involvement in extracurricular activities at K-State. The Ag Econ Club, the Block and Bridal Club, we had a student body president, 
of K-State, who was in our fraternity house. So that was very important, and it got me out of my AgEcon uh, track and started learning about what else was going on in the College of Agriculture. Third, and this, this may be the most important of all, is that what it did is the relationships I built. I still have people today, and I'm sure you do, Lane, that I was in college with that I maintain relationships today with. In fact, uh, I had several of them <laughs> call me up in the last week and talk to me about this retirement. These are people that were in my fraternity house that I've maintained relationships with, and those relationships are so important to me, and I know those relationships are so important to those other people. So I would encourage anyone uh, to join AGR. Or, you know, I'll say this to you, Lane. If, you, if, you, if AGR is not in your wheelhouse, go join Farmhouse um, and get involved in a fraternity because I, it will advance your career in agriculture. And I run into AGRs all the time from other land-grant universities uh, that I, in my work, and uh, it's, it's been a real... I guess I'll allow you to really mention Farmhouse on my podcast, Kendall, but, <laughs> but uh, even, even, even for the young women out there, Kendall, Sigma well, Alpha, which is the, the, the sister sorority to, to AGR, uh, provides young women in agriculture the same opportunity, so I, I want to give Sigma Alpha a shout-out as well. Sure, and I mentioned Farmhouse because I've got a lot of friends that even we've got colleagues here at MCBA who are Farmhouse graduates, and there are an awful lot of people that I've met through the years that graduated from Farmhouse. So go do it. Uh, I just it, have to poke fun at my, my uh, fellow farm broadcaster, uh, Spencer Chase, who was a farm houser in college as well. But but I agree with you. Just just being able to have those opportunities to, to really expand leadership opportunities and just have those lifelong connections. That's why I wanted to bring up uh, our, our relationship through AGR. But uh, heck, we've been talking for over an hour here, Kendall, and I know you have work to do. But what's in store for you now? You've announced your retirement. Uh, what what's in store for you and your family? And uh, where 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 do you plan to hang your hat up and maybe uh, kick back and relax for a while? Well, there's three or four things I'm going to go do uh, that I plan on doing, uh, Lane. One is uh, <clears throat> I'm going to spend more time with my wife, and we've been married 44 years. It is the single most proudest accomplishment that I'm proudest of, and I want to spend some quality time with her. You know, these kind of jobs, as you're well aware of, Lane, you sacrifice and make trade-offs. Uh, so I'm going to step back and spend some more quality time with her. I'm going to go out and reconnect with some of the people outside of work that I just mentioned uh, that are longtime friends of mine that I haven't had a chance to spend much time with, and I'm going to do that. Uh, and I'm going to go see some of those people and reconnect with them and rebuild some of those, reestablish and rebuild and strengthen some of those relationships. So I'm going to do that. Uh, there's some things that I would like to see in the United States. I've been fortunate that I've traveled to 46 states. Uh, I've kitted people. I don't want to get on an airplane again. I've done an awful lot of air travel, uh, over a million miles of air travel in my career, and I really don't want to do that. But there's some things I can go see and drive to that I want to, I want to do with my wife. I've never had an opportunity to see the Grand Canyon, for example. I've never been to up in your neck of the woods, Glacier National Park. Uh, my wife has never been to Yellowstone. Uh, those are some things that we can drive and do, and I, I want to go do that. One area of the country I've not spent much time in <clears throat> is the Pacific Northwest, Oregon and Washington. And uh, there's some things up there that I want to go see. I want to go see the Columbia River uh, Valley and some of that country up there in Washington. So those are some things that, that well, uh, I, I want I to do. I know you're going to be, enjoy doing those, and when you're up here in Montana, make sure and give, give me a call, and I can show you around Bozeman if you make it up uh, this way here. But, uh, Kendall, thank you so much for, for joining us uh, here on the podcast and sharing your experience and, and your knowledge and uh, insight to to the American agriculture uh, industry and uh, the advocacy that uh, you have been a part of. Uh, I'll give you the floor. Is there, is there anything else that you'd like to, to share with our listeners today before we wrap it all up? I don't think so, Lane. Uh, I, I just want to say one final thing. Uh, I've really enjoyed working with you uh, and other fellow farm broadcasters throughout the years. Um, 
They're very supportive of agriculture. They're very supportive of the commodity and farm organizations. And uh, by sharing information about what those organizations are doing, that's very important to us. So we appreciate the support that you've given us through the years and what you do. Well, thank you, Kendall, and thank you for your years of service as a farm broadcaster and an advocate for the livestock industry. Friends, that's going to wrap up today's podcast. Thanks for joining us and being a part of the Agriculture Conversation. I'm Lane Nordland. See you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the LaneCast with Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster and NordlandCommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the LaneCast.